Hey, I'm Craig Finn. You're listening to That's How I Remember It. This is the final episode of season three of this podcast, and we are ending the season in style. My guest today is Jason Isbell. Jason is one of the great songwriters of our time. I'm thrilled to have him here to talk about how his memory informs his work and whatever else comes up. I first put eyes on Jason when he was a member of the Drive-By Truckers. I went to see them at the Bowery Ballroom. The show changed my life. I'm still a bit unclear as to exactly when that show was. It might have been just before we started the Hold Steady. It might have also been when the band was around, but just for a little bit. I've looked on the internet and I've talked to both Jason and Patterson Hood about it, and I'm still not sure. I don't exactly mind not knowing, as that kind of hazy memory is what makes this podcast entertaining me. Interrogating your own life. I'm pretty sure I met Jason for the first time at South by Southwest, 2006, I believe. I ran into him a few times after that. He was kind enough to bring me on tour in 2015, and I got a front row seat to see him and his band, The 400 Unit, at a very exciting time. His last record, 2023's Weather Veins, just won a few Grammys, and it's yet another great one in a run of incredible records through the past decade or so. On top of all that, Jason and I have both written songs about Ybor City, and we got to talk about that and much more. This conversation happened at the end of November 2023, and it's everything I hoped it would be. Let's check it out. Jason Isbell, welcome to That's How I Remember It. Thank you so much for joining us. I start all these the same way, which is with this question. Do you consider yourself to have a good memory? Yes, uh, for better or worse, um, I do have a good my be- my best My best friend calls me the steel trap. So I started this podcast with the idea that writers specifically would all say they had a good memory, and that's not been the case. But I'm no, wondering yeah. how do you how do you think your memory shows up in your work? Um, well, a gr- a, a big part of what I if there's an overarching theme to what I'm trying to do, a lot of my favorite uh, songs or books or movies or uh, pieces of art in general take preconceptions or nostalgic ideas of the past or of people or of uh, circumstances or of regions or of uh, uh, relationships. And then they sort of undo those and Mm -hmm. show you here's what it's really like. And I think that's the trick for a whole lot of songwriters. That's kind of what we do is we go, all right, everybody assumes that this is one way. Let's, let's show them what we think it's really like to do that. Having a reliable memory uh, really comes in handy, you know, or at least, at least one that you can commit to, even if it's not objectively reliable, at least having a subjectivity that you can argue for. When the first, the very first episode of this podcast, I had Patterson on and um, I was talking to him about some of his songs about like how I thought some of them sort of built monuments in a way to people that don't normally get monuments built to them, you know, not generals, not uh, et cetera. Does that jive with what, what you were just saying about kind of like your favorite type of songs? Yeah, for sure. But Pat- Patterson does, uh, uh, there is one general. Uh, <laughs> it's his uh, grandmother's uh, husband in Box of Spiders. I think it was his grandfather in Box of Spiders. Because remember, they say, put the general in a box. Yeah. Uh, and when he dies, yeah, that when you said general, I remembered that one. I mean, I almost feel like once I kind of stumbled across that idea, I thought about sometimes maybe 
a song can be like a monument even to a song a person that doesn't exist yeah oh a lot and sometimes they're monuments to other songs mm-hmm. um you know and and but patterson has always been that it was very eye-opening for me the first time i heard his songs um and and so, it's something that i have have uh, carried with me and it was very influential because he would take like a song like the deeper in on the dirty south that song you know if i sat here and told you what it was about you know it would it, you would ha- you would have no concept of what the song would sound like it's a beautiful song it's a love story but it's about siblings you know who did not realize they were siblings but you know it's based on a true story and what he did sort of was take the the joke you know the redneck fucking their sister joke and said well what if this was really your life and he's done that so many times uh so well and and it is like uh you know a very not people who usually get remembered, you know, yeah. or who, people whose stories usually get told. And I, I love that. You know, your your own songs have tons of details. I mean, just listening to the new record, Thick Cut Bacon, Inside Fastballs, Quick Stops, Rex's Blues, The Sunvolt Song, KOA Campground. How do the details end up in your songs? Are these things that, I mean, is it some from something from yesterday when you sit down to write the song or is it, or do those details just help you bring the world into better focus or something it, it's kind of have you ever done the the uh writer's exercise where you just write around the room that you're in mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that one's pretty you know for like short for for fiction work you you just take well there's the television and underneath it there's a whole bunch of legos and then under that there's a stuffed cat and under that there's more legos and some dragons and uh, a portable record player and then you just go around in a circle but in a song, obviously, you have a, a very brief window of time. Yeah. Uh, so the thing that I probably work the most on is in the editing process is which details are going to deliver the, what I need to deliver, you know. And, and so things like square-toed boots or, or, you know, a lunch order or um, a prairie dog, or, these things all put you in a, in a very specific place. And they're also... Like, have you ever seen the the barbershop conversation about Jay Z? How he writes lyrics? How there's like there's one level that is that is for everybody, yeah. And then there's another level that's for the Jay Z fans, and there's another level that's for people who actually know him personally. I think all of those details for all of us work that way because there's somebody who's really close to you who's going to hear one of your songs and go, "I know what he's talking about," and nobody else is going to know, and they don't need to know. Because on the on the larger level, they know that you know thick cut bacon on Texas toast is is a lot of things. It's a good sandwich, but it's also a very shapely way to describe a woman. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it, it works. It works. But you know, Amanda would know what I had for lunch that day at that at that you know drive in in Post Texas. That's that's amazing. I mean, the the Jay Z conversation. I hadn't really thought of that, but it's absolutely true in in songwriting, and um, I know I play with it too. One of the things I know I do is sort of imagine a a scale, and when you got details, and if there's too many details, it's sort of weighed down. You know what I mean? You're just describing, you're not leaving enough, maybe enough room for everyone else's hopes and dreams in it, and so you start taking them off. But but that said, like every once in a while I've seen 
quote unquote songwriting advice that that says to avoid details. And I, I I've I never liked that. Like I feel like <laughs> yeah. I need them to bring bring it into focus. Women's you know people's names, etc. Yeah, yeah. Have you have you heard that? And you does that bug you at all? I have not heard that, but I can see where that would probably. You know, it depends on your goal. I mean, if you write, if you, if you just list a bunch of details, you have written a poem, and you are not going to eat dinner because <laughs> poets do not eat. You know, uh, uh, like Amanda says, a blockbuster is three thousand copies. That's a yeah. that's a huge hit. You know, but if you want to sell millions of copies or stream millions of pennies or whatever you want to do, then you you might want to be vague. You know, so people who aren't interested in uh, uh, heavy things can consume what you're selling. But I, I think you and I probably write for a pretty similar reason. Um, and that's kind of to connect with people and, and to mm-hmm. remind people that they're not alone. And something that's super appealing to me, and I assume probably to you too, is when somebody feels like, you know, that person knows a secret. The person that wrote that song knows a secret about me that I was afraid to tell anybody. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they said it out loud means that it doesn't, there's not anything wrong with me, or at least I'm not alone. Uh, and details are the only way to get there, you know. And they have to be personal. They have to be ones that you're a little bit suspicious of. You have to think, this this is not going to work with anybody but me, but, but I'm going to go ahead and put it in there. Because sure enough, every time I do that, somebody says, how did you know that my mom's name was Shirley? <laughs> There's a There was a writer on this that we had on, uh, my friend Edward Kitsis, and he said something, he called it the hollow bunny theory, which is like, with those details, without those details, it's kind of like biting in one of those Easter bunnies with the, the chocolates, you know, not on the inside. Yeah. And that, the, and that the, the details make it real in some way. And I think in some ways the details are what ends up making it honest. Like, if I write a song about robbing a bank, I've never done that before. But if I put that bank on a corner in Minneapolis that I walk through 400 times every year, then somehow it makes more sense or it, or it feels real or more real to yeah. me. I, I feel like more confident in telling that story. And there's a risk to it for you, you know, because if you're going to put details like that, you, you have to get them right. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that means you're ta- you're taking a risk and you're investing in the song. Cause you know, if you, if you say Hennepin's in St. Louis, somebody, you know, everybody's <laughs> right. going to catch that, you know? Right. And, and, and so to do that, you have to, either know what the fuck you're talking about or you got to get out a map. You know, <laughs> I have done both of those things. And, you know, if I'm including details that can be cross-referenced, I, I'm going to go through and check every way that I possibly can. But, you know, I think that's also a, a, a sort of a trust fall, you know, from the from the creator to the audience. It's like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm risking this, you know, so you have something to hold on to. And I think what you said is beautiful. Like, I mean, and I think it's very true. Any, any book, song, movie, whatever. The the thing we're looking for is though. Like, I felt that. I felt that way too, right? I mm-hmm. mean, like that's that, it. Yeah. How did they know? Yeah. That is the best. That's the best feeling you could possibly get as an artist. Is how did they know? You mm-hmm. know, that's the most beautiful thing in the world. Well, how, speaking of that, do you, do you have an early memory of like music that moved you? Like the like the first thing. Can you put your finger on it? I remember becoming really obsessed with uh, the Derek and the Dominoes Layla record mm-hmm. when I was a little kid. I'd already been playing guitar for a couple of years, and uh, my granddad 
played in the Pentecostal Holiness Church. He was a preacher, and so they had the loud band, you know, the PV mm-hmm. amps and the drums and all that stuff. And uh, so I had played with him, and I knew gospel music and, you know, some stuff that was on the radio in the 80s. But the first thing that really just knocked me on my back was uh, that Layla record. And I heard, you know, Layla on the classic rock radio, mm-hmm. and I didn't know that it was Clapton. I didn't know, you know, what what it was at all but i called the radio station immediately and requested that they played that again and uh i had the sound design like uh you know the the kmart um stereo with the cassette deck and it had Mm -hmm. the double cassette deck so you could record and i sat there in the floor overnight waiting with my thumb on the record button for him to play that song again and uh, with my maxell you know and he never did and so the next morning before I went to school, I called back and I was like, man, I, I waited all night. I don't know if I missed it or if I fell asleep. And I was like, he was like, oh, I'm so sorry, kid. I forgot to play your request, you know, and I still remember his voice uh, it, yeah. and, and he played it and I recorded it. And I took it to my mom and my mom was like, I think that's Eric Clapton. I was like, no, that's not. It's Derek something. He said, Derek, mm-hmm. not Eric. And, you know, t- totally threw me off. And then finally she took me to the record bar. Uh, in Florence, Alabama, mm-hmm. and they had put out the box set re-release, so I got that on cassette. That I, I obsessed over that. I really did. Backing up for a second, when you talk about the band and church, what's what's the instrumentation in a band like that? Because I actually don't, I don't know. I, you know, it is chaos. It's the <laughs> instrumentation. It's pure chaos. It depends on who is sick that week and who mm-hmm. showed up from out of town. You know, usually there would be like a, a, a drums and an electric bass and an acoustic guitar. You know, mm-hmm. but but there were there were distant cousins who would show up with saxophones. And, you know, it was never like a, it it never exactly made sense. You know, there would be like one soprano saxophone and a rock band, you know, but uh, it would just be whoever could play, you know, and, um, and they would go to my grandmother's house uh, most of the time on like Sunday nights after church and and we would all sit around and play and it was a small house. So it was super loud, but that all the family members who didn't play would sing. And I, I remember my, my great aunt Judy, her voice was so loud. She was a good singer, you know, but it was mm-hmm. it was so loud. It was like painfully loud. Um uh but yeah, it would just be whoever was alive that Sunday and could play an instrument, you know. But guitar bass drums is a as a as the, the, the core of it. Yeah, that would be that would be the baseline. Yeah, um, and and you know, PV. I mean, that's how PV stayed in sure. business. Southern churches, you know, Mississippi Marshalls, and every one of them. Yeah. Matter yeah. of fact, the last time I saw anybody using a PV was at my grandfather's funeral uh, a year ago. You know, there were PVs up for the loudspeakers. So I was like, well, something something still survives. It's uh, it's funny you say your grandfather's funeral because I when you were talking about taping that song, I had this memory of a. Uh, Going to my, I was in sixth grade and I, my grandfather passed. And I had to go to Massachusetts and I was, you know, the plane was, uh, we were getting on a plane in a couple hours and I really wanted to have this song on a cassette. So I was calling the radio station and say, will you play it? And I told him, look, I'm going to a funeral. I need you to play this song in the next two. And, and they didn't do it. So those guys have oh, always man. kind of been my, uh, but I think like, who knows if they were even choosing the songs at that point. Right. Uh, yeah. You're, you're right. You're right. I do. I have a friend who um, 
uh, made a lot of money because a uh, Tommy Talton and Scott Boyer, uh, who had that band Cowboy, uh, Scott has since passed away, but but um, he was a good friend of mine. Somebody uh, really loved one of their songs, and um, he got fired from the radio station for like cursing on air or something. And he locked himself in the control room and just played this one song on repeat, you know, but it was like their sweeps week. It was the week that they, that they tallied up what got played to pay BMI and ASCAP. And so it looked to them like the only song they played on that (laughs) radio station all year was that song. So my friend wound up getting a really nice check out of that just because the guy went crazy and played that one song over and over. But yeah, that was in the seventies. I don't know by 1986 or 87, you know, who was making the decisions. And it was a pop, it was a pop station. So I don't know, but um, how about like seasonal stuff? Do you, is, is there, do you, does music, the season, does that affect what music you want to hear? Like, like, is there fall music, summer music, et cetera, to you? Or is it all the same? It's all the same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, probably all the music that I listen to is, is uh, you know, winter, winter <laughs> music. <laughs> it's, I, I don't know, though. I like pop music, you know. And and uh, my daughter is, is a really good Spanish speaker. And all she ever wants to listen to is uh, music in Spanish. So I have been able to enjoy a lot of... Uh, you know, Latin pop. Uh, uh, there's a lot of Carol G and and Becky G and Rosalia and Caliuchis and you know a lot of stuff that I probably would not have found on my own. That's playing at the house all the time. Like I took her to see uh, Demi Lovato at the at the Ryman a couple of years ago, and it was it was fantastic. Yeah, I love it. I love I love pop music because I have an eight year old daughter. Sure. Sure. You're one of the only people I've had. The only other one was John Darnielle that didn't say things were super seasonal. Oh, really? Well, yeah. that I, that's a compliment. That John, I like that John. He's a smart dude, man. Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, he he kind of threw. He he said, and um, yeah. But that but that's interesting. Hey, I'm Craig Finn. Here on that's how I remember it. We often talk about music, so I wanted to mention DistroKid and their new app for iPhone and Android. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. With this app, you can sign up and pay for a new DistroKid account or sign into an existing one. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you've earned royalties. Edit your account details, check your streaming stats, add lyrics and song credits, edit release metadata, and so much more. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. How about, uh, here's one. Uh, have you ever had a song that was ruined for you? I mean, a breakup would be the obvious, but is, is there ever a song that you're like, I'm just done with that one? One that I wrote or one that I listened nah, to? No, that you've attached a memory to. Probably not that you've written. Okay, because a lot of the ones that I've written have been ruined by me later becoming a better songwriter. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> a lot of those I'm like, uh-uh, I don't care how many times you request that. I'm not playing it because you're the only person that wanted to hear it 20 years ago. Um, that's, but that's, uh, like, that's like changing your tires, you know? Like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It is. It's like I'm not putting those frets back on that guitar. They suck. That's, not how, that's why I got new ones. You know... 
I don't think so. And I don't know if it's because <sighs> that's a good question. No, no, I, I think I've made an intentional choice to not allow that to happen. That's cool. Um, I think I think I always have because I can certainly I could list off a bunch of songs that have have sort of soundtracked really difficult times in my life. But I think just out of spite, I've always said, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to continue to enjoy that song, you know, sure. because fuck whatever happened around it. Like, I remember I, I was dating this girl in college and she was really cool. Like, uh, like I was not really cool. You know, I was I was the other kind of person and she was really cool. And she was like, this was like the 90s. and She wore a pacifier you know, around her neck because she was rolling so much in the in the clubs at night that she would need to bite down on the pacifier so she didn't grind her teeth. And the 90s were weird. And uh, <laughs> um, she she was doing this like Martha Graham type of dance thing at, at school, which was, you know, that's very cool to dance mm -hmm. and it'd be all fucking weird and stuff. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's cool people shit. And she wanted uh, a song, like she asked me, you know, to pick a song for her to do a dance routine to. And I picked some like Peter Gabriel or something. And mm -hmm. she was like, that's not cool. And, uh, it, you know, this was like 1998, 99. And, you know, and I was like, no, that is it's extremely cool. That's Peter Gabriel, <laughs> you know. But she was like, no, that's the fucking cheesiest shit I've ever heard in my life. And, and she wound up picking something super weird. But, you know, after that, I remember thinking, I'm not going to let that woman convinced me that peter gabriel's not cool peter gabriel's fucking cool like that's cool that's always going to be cool you know that's yeah yeah all, always for sure but i mean those are those are times when you're figuring you're going up against some i don't know sometimes at, the, at that age you have to kind of stick up for your own shit a little bit I don't you know. have to a lot yeah, yeah especially if you're like a dork if you're somebody who's not you know like your intention is not to follow uh, uh, the cool kids, if your intention is to, to like go ahead and let yourself be a fucking dork, then yeah, you got to defend that hard because they really want you to like, you know, dress this way and act this way and listen to this music. And, and you see, they did then. I don't know. Maybe they're better about that now. It seems like young people have a, have a, have a better grasp on being themselves now than, than we did when we were that age. Also, music is more personal now with headphones and stuff. I wonder mm. if we uh, don't have to justify it as much anymore. Yeah, you know? we don't have to listen to each other's shit now as yeah. much. Yeah, that's 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 true. Although I was a headphones were were like a, a holy grail. Like I always had headphones because my dad would my dad would go to work and he would come home and he would listen to music in his headphones when he got home from work for like an hour. And you know that's how I knew he had a rough day. Don't don't interrupt him. And he, I mean, he would listen to like vinyl. Mm -hmm. You know, he would put on the record and plug the headphones in with the big quarter inch yeah. of yeah. you know the huge the airplane landers. So I always had headphones on when I was a kid. But I do think culturally, you're right. It's it's become more of an individual practice. Um, you know, speaking of changing, you've been recording and releasing music for long enough. You've seen changes and whatever. But do you still think? In albums, like when you when you're getting songs together, do you say like I'm trying to write an album? Yeah, definitely. I don't do it when I start. Like I, I kind of have a, a method at this point where I just start writing songs, mm -hmm. and then after I've got a couple of songs, then I start writing an album that includes those couple of songs. You know, but once it starts sort of flowing, because I have learned just about myself that 
that the best thing I can do uh, is is not slow myself down or not edit myself before it's time to edit, you know, mm-hmm. not cut not cut that off early. So like initially I'm just writing a song and then I'm just writing another song and then I'm like, oh, maybe it's maybe I'm doing this again, you know, because it's happening more frequently. So now I'm writing an album. Do you find themes like do you do, do themes kind of come up as you start to collect songs? Do you say like, oh, this is I guess what I'm thinking about right now? I, uh, yes, but I try to ignore it uh-huh. um, because I, I have discovered that that stuff will do all that'll do all that work itself. You know, mm-hmm. like by the time I get an album written, I can go back and you know that, and I do it every time because I'm like, I'm going to have to talk about this to people, so let me go figure out what I'm trying to say. And I'll go and connect the dots, you know, that, that, that's happened like the last four or five albums. I've, I've, you know, just written a bunch of songs, you know, recorded them and, and for track listing, I'll even use the, you know, the old vinyl method, uh, which Matt Ross Spang told me about years ago. Um, and it makes so much sense that the, you know, the heavier productions uh, get more space in the grooves. So mm-hmm. the way albums were always track listed was, you know, you got a wider groove, you put your production here so you can hear it and it sounds like it's supposed to. And then as you go through the, toward the, toward the circle in the middle, you know, things get let, get sparse uh, because they don't need as much space. Uh, and I still make track lists with that in mind because I think we're sort of conditioned. I think there's some kind of a comfort food to hearing an album in that sequence after all these years. I do that too, but it had nothing to do with that. The technical aspect of that is just because the records I've always heard. Um, and that's why that's why they're that way, though. I mean, you were doing it for the same reason. You just didn't necessarily know or, or intend. I think people hear that that way. They think, okay, the loud shit's supposed to happen first, and then it gets quieter, and then the loud shit happens again when you flip it over. You know? Well, when you flip it over, there's also like this second chance to make a first impression, right? You come back out yeah. strong, you know? Um, yeah. Come back out swinging. The, the title of the album, the, the newest record, Weather Veins, mentioned in Cast Iron Skillet, which is one of my favorite songs you've uh, put out. But when you say she found love simple as a weather vein, it's a beautiful thought. Did, did you know, like, w- when you found the title of the record, was it going that period of going back over the songs? Or were you like, when you wrote that, were you like, I got a record? I had already written that song, and that line was not in it. And I had already titled the album. Mm-hmm. And then I went back and needed to change that line. And I thought, ooh, I think I can get the, t- the album title in right here. And so I did it in the reverse order. I wrote that line after I'd already named the album Weather Veins. Was Weather Veins somewhere else on the album? I can't remember. No, oh, no. Okay, so. that's, but that's what I was going to call the album for other reasons. Yeah. And it was initially not included in the lyrics at all. And then when I needed to edit that last line and cast iron skillet or last line of the verse before the last chorus that's what i did i was like oh no 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 this is what i need to do this will be perfect as i was listening to the record and prep there's there's like some lines and imagery um in death wish when the world turns monochrome um in king of oklahoma you say nothing makes me feel like nothing anymore when you talk about starting to slip and save the world do you think this is the most like you know i don't know how to say this but quote-unquote mental health record that you've made yeah yeah maybe so maybe so I mean, if you do if you're doing things right, I guess that becomes the the challenge. You know, after a while, it's like I'm not going to sit and write about a broken heart. I'm not going to write about uh, not understanding my own feelings. 
you know, I'm not going to do confessional songwriting, whatever that bullshit means, you know. It's like I'm I'm 44 and and I've been sober for over a decade and the thing that I'm really concerned with is how do I stabilize myself, you know, over the long term and and how do I stay above water and still find joy in everything and find gratitude and and you know, how do I go through the last half of my life in a way that is mentally psychologically healthy for me and everybody that's around me so that's that's where i am it's, that's why the record turned out to be about that as much as anything else <laughs> well i'm 52 and i figured i think at this point i think that maybe every record's a mental health record yeah and, right. you know that's why they're that's why they're there yeah <laughs> well yeah and, and and it's maybe my understanding as i grow older of everything you know where i used to say like oh that guy drinks a lot or that guy fights a lot and 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 maybe as I've gotten older, my understanding of the world is maybe way more based on mental health. Um, oh yeah, me too. Me too. Me too. Yeah. And so I think when I create now, it's I feel like I'm so much more interested in those questions than you know, you know, it's like the, the guy crashing his car. It's like why why did he crash his car? Why did that woman crash her car? You know what? Mm-hmm. It seems it seems like it's I don't know. It's under everything. At a, after a certain age to me. Yeah, I think so. And you start working backwards, you know, like like we we're talking about that uh, Layla record. Like when I got that, I started working backwards, you know, until I got to Robert Johnson, you know, and then that was the thing I was really obsessed with, you know, which was very strange for a 10-year-old, 11-year-old <laughs> kid in Green Hill, Alabama, you know. Like I remember asking my music teacher about that. Luckily, he was really cool mike nix he was a hippie and he loved the rolling stones more than life itself and and uh you know i remember being like 10 or 11 and asking him about robert johnson and he was like hold up what you know like it was just a bunch of little redneck kids but my point of that is i think you know as i've gotten older i do that with with you know why i might have written about the event or about what i thought was a catalyst 20 years ago and now I'm working backwards. Now I'm saying, well, what, what influenced this and what influenced that and what influenced that? And you're never going to get, you know, the answer. You're never going to get all the way back to the beginning. Uh, but but working backwards is more interesting to me. Like, like, why did this person turn out that way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and there, the mental health stuff, it, again, goes deep in families sometimes. And, you know. Um, <laughs> all the time. Yeah, every yeah. time. Um, yeah. And you, by the way, you... I, I, you were a special kid because I remember hearing, you know, Trey reading Jimmy Page and all this and everyone talking about Robert Johnson. And when I finally got to it, I was like, I just couldn't, I, I was too young for it. Right. You oh, know? yeah. Because it, yeah. it was, it was scratchy and it was sounded far away. And it just like, I thought I was about to like have my life changed. And it, it didn't, in some way, it didn't yeah. deliver for me because I couldn't get it yet. Or I skipped too many steps, maybe. That ha- that happened with me with Doc Watson. I remember my other granddad, my mom's dad. He he got me some Doc Watson records for Christmas one year. And you know what? I honestly think it was because it was white. Uh, because at that point, that was not it. I I needed, you know, I had already been listening to old black blues man and hearing, mm-hmm. you know, the the hillbilly version of it to me at the time was not as appealing. Yeah. Uh, and it didn't make sense. But as far as like the, the, I don't know, scratchy sort of r- rudimentary thing, 
I got over that because I was trying to figure out how to play it. Mm-hmm. And because I was playing slide guitar at that point. And when I tried to figure out how to play that stuff, then I got super obsessed with it because I'm like, oh, this is literally impossible, you know? And and of course there was the the devil and the selling the soul and the crossroads thing, which as a kid was super intriguing to me. But, you know, a few years after that, it occurred to me what was going on. It was kind of like, you know, the pyramid. It's like, oh, aliens must have done it. Oh, he must have sold his soul to the devil. No, sir. He's just he's just black and he's better at something than you are. And you can't figure out how that's possible. So you have to say he sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads. <laughs> right. Being a music fan of a certain age, I think, is sometimes going back and putting things in sequential order, you know? Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because that's that's where your brain goes. The curiosity is like, uh, I hear something in this that I've heard before. Mm-hmm. You know, where did he get this from? Like, uh, one thing recently that hit me is uh, David Gilmore and Paul Kossoff. And this is a connection that I have never heard anybody else make. But I don't know. I think Gilmore soloing was probably influenced by Kossoff soloing. Because if you go back and listen, like there's a signature Paul Kossoff lick that he does in All Right Now and all the, you know, and his vibrato is a lot faster. He had the like B.B. King, you know, super quick vibrato. Um but there's a there's a lick that Paul Kossoff does that Gilmore started doing around uh, uh, the wall, and Gilmore kind of built off of that with a lot, you know, stuff like that that I love. It's like I I never heard it before, but it had to have been because it's so so similar. I, yeah, I think you could, as you get. I mean, I think like when I was a kid, I only wanted stuff that was now. Like I was into punk and indie stuff, and I was like, you know, yeah. it's not this year. I don't think. And now I'm like, that's almost like. It's almost the opposite. I want to like sort of build this, make the chart a little bit, mm-hmm. understand it, yeah. make the timeline, but. the family tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. see, I didn't, I, I didn't have any access to anything, you know, uh, left of the dial, so to speak, when I was a kid. I had, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the the gospel music and the hillbilly stuff and the, the old country, the Opry country, and then my dad. Uh, listen to like arena rock and you know it's the 70s and, and he liked big you know he liked kiss and free yeah. then lizzie and you know he liked to rock out and then he liked to listen to merle haggard and my mom liked uh, songwriters james taylor and john prine and uh, bonnie Raitt, carly simon that kind of music and i had no until i really until i got in the truckers band i didn't know you know uh uh, neutral milk hotel or like uh pylon or you know uh even really the replacements catalog or mm-hmm. all that stuff that uh, was was going down the road with those guys when i was in my early 20s 10 years ago you know southeastern uh it's the 10 year anniversary i think you put out this year so mm-hmm. i had a memory in in advance of talking to you 2012 november 2012 i'm on tour i'm with patterson hood and will johnson in a van we're in europe and we're um, we're driving through Spain somewhere. Patterson's in the front seat, and he's saying to Will, um, "Hey, I and I think this is my memory of it. So I think this is how it went. Hey, I talked to Jason. Jason says he had an album that he thinks is going to go. It's going to connect with a bigger audience. I, I'm pretty sure by this point you'd gotten sober. I'm not sure, but now I don't exa- know exactly what you said to Patterson. That's just my memory. But thinking back at the time between like when you recorded Southeastern and it being released, did you? have a feeling of a strength did you 
did you think you were about to like put something out that might change your your own life yeah i did you know i didn't know like what i was doing on a day-to-day because i had just gotten sober Mm -hmm. so i got sober and then i wrote that record Mm -hmm. right after that and then i recorded it all within like the first year of sobriety and then i got married the day after like you know i got married on saturday went in and did a couple vocal overdubs on sunday went on my honeymoon on monday and uh and then probably called patterson when i got back because i was in costa rica on our honeymoon and i was having to listen to the masters to approve them but i hadn't taken any headphones with me so i had to ride into town and buy some headphones and they broke before i even got them (laughs) out of the packaging and then there was only one table at the hotel we were staying at the restaurant that had wi-fi and uh so i had to sit at that table and hold the headphones in my ear to approve those masters. So I probably called Patterson right when I got home, like the next week. Yeah, I definitely felt like something, uh, you know, I had made something that was gonna impact at least me and my audience, you know, and maybe grow the audience some. I didn't know to what extent, uh, you know, until we started touring it. And when we started touring it and everybody showed up and we couldn't like, you know, move the venues up quick enough to keep up with the demand, then it was kind of like, Oh, and I, you know, I had seen it before with the rock opera because yeah. I didn't play on that album. I just joined right before they started touring. And I remember being with Patterson when the Rolling Stone review came out, you know, and then everybody showing up. And just weeks before, we'd been playing for 50 people. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, all these rooms were just assholes to elbows, you know. And to get to see that happen twice is a really is an incredible thing, you know. That's that's very unique. Most, I mean, to have it once is amazing. To have it twice yeah. is is almost unheard of. You know, it's both yeah, answers. yeah. It's really, you know, just it was a continuation. I think of of my recovery and and my survival. It was like mm-hmm. it all became this one. You know, if you can just get your shit together and start paying attention to what you already have, then beautiful things will happen. And I'm not saying that's as the case for everybody but that was the case for me and for me once i you know got my priorities in order and started taking care of my mind then all these things started sort of naturally occurring and yeah to see that happen a second time is you know really one of the one of the things i'm most grateful for because it was it was a good feeling nobody in the band knew what was going on everybody was like what the fuck is this? Why are there, Why all of a sudden are there this many people here? And I was like, <laughs> it, it worked. I, oh, holy shit, you know? One of the things I talk about with people is I, I'm always interested to see how musicians remember like a specific show because you do tons of them, obviously. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, going back to that era, the first time I saw DBT, you were in the band, it was at Bowery Ballroom and it was loud, wild, exciting, chaotic. And I, I literally went away from the show and said, I'm, I hadn't been in a band for a few years. I said, I'm going to start a band. And I started the whole steady. And so, I mean, that is like literally, in my mind, a life-changing show, if, if such a thing exists. Do you, even, do you remember that show? Do you remember? Um, I, when, I what year more. was it? Well, I, that's the thing. It's a little fuzzy for me, and I didn't want to look it up to sort of ruin it. I'll tell you one one detail that I remember, which might place it, because I'm wondering if I already maybe had started the band, and then I'm just telling the story in a yeah, in a way. Yeah. But um, Cooley, they're they're joking about Cooley's wife being very pregnant and maybe having to get him on a plane. 
Okay, yes, I do, because it was... There were two shows before that that we played at the... This was our third show at the Bowery Ballroom. So this would have been... Uh, there was one that was on New Year's Eve, and Patty Smith played. Like, they did mm-hmm. the thing where they clear the room and bring everybody yeah. in. So Patty played before us the normal set. They cleared everybody out. We came back in and played the, the midnight ball drop set. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was another one, like the following Halloween, uh, when we all dressed up as characters from the Andy Griffith show. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that one because um, uh, um, Ansley was very drunk and not pregnant at okay. that one. And she was like fell over Cooley's amps and his whole stack came down. <laughs> she like got us she used to get on stage and like dance on him you know and took the whole marshall stack to the ground it was amazing so it would have been the third one and that would have been like i don't know maybe 2003 does that seem that, right to that you? sounds right that sounds totally right and so yeah um, I think the band had actually started. So I think my, my, my story, either I'm remembering it incorrectly or I'm just telling the story in the most dramatic way. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but it was, it was like, like that, that looks fun. Let's do this, you know? Um, yeah. And it, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. All right. So I got, um, I think just one more. I feel like I have to ask it. Um, oh, a show you were going to ask, what were you going to ask me if I had a show that, impacted me that way oh no 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 actually but i wasn't gonna ask i was gonna ask you if you remembered that show but actually do you i remember that show and i also remember the first time i saw that band um uh-huh. and it was at uh, uh uh that club across from the college of art in memphis um uh what was the name of that club it's it's closed down now but uh emilio harris and elvis costello did a live thing from the, the high tone the high tone. It was at the high tone in Memphis. And I remember I was like 19 or something. And my girlfriend and I went and it was, I think when Rob was still in the band, cause it was like, they were just finishing the rock opera, mm-hmm. like the recording of it and stuff. And I didn't really know them very well then. And I went and saw them because I had gotten their, uh, their record off of like lime wire, maybe I think, <laughs> you know, back in the early, like, grip it and rip it days and yeah. uh i remember there weren't many people there but i remember being really affected by that i don't know that i thought i want to be in that band i think that i think that creeped into my mind a little bit at that point there is some filthy backstage graffiti in that room uh, oh yeah, yeah sure I, wish, I wish somebody <laughs> kept it in frame because it's probably all gone now what's the best backstage graffiti you ever saw by the way do you remember one of the great ones is actually from um uh i saw it uh and and i know the, the band the grifters from memphis told me about it yeah. before i ever saw it which was uh get out of your spaceship and fight like a man i thought that was yeah really, they, they yeah. made a song yeah. they made That's a song good. called that i like that a lot where was the grifters uh gorilla was what? that at the 40 watt i think that was at the 40 watt the the grifters with the big gorilla 40 watt probably yeah yeah that was man i love the grifters and i think that tool came directly from the grifters really and i actually yes listen to spaced out okay and then listen to the first tool album and oh, yeah. it's like a goddamn the universe with all that like it, it's it's so it sounds so much like tool wound up sounding and i actually showed that to sylvia massey who produced those tool records and she was like oh i totally hear this i completely hear this but 
my favorite graffiti is also at the 40 watt and it says uh, i fucked your mom last night and underneath it it says go home dad you're drunk <laughs> that's my favorite backstage graffiti of all time that's amazing okay. you know the grip the grifter i because don't get me started on the grifters i'm going to keep it short but that that is a band that um we did we're 20 years old to hold steady this year and so at the beginning of the year we went back and played the place we first played which is now the williamsburg music hall but was north six back then and uh yeah. and we played all the early songs and and i realized like the first you know 12 songs we had were really we were trying to be the grifters and and what we ended up doing was our own Perfect. thing but but like i'm like oh i stole that like that even that these chords they're like dave shouse chords and mm -hmm. uh um, I, I feel like it's a band people forgot, unfortunately, a little bit more than they should have because they were just an incredible band. They were so good. There was so much weird shit happening in Memphis in the 90s, man. And I think, honestly, I think when Buckley drowned, a lot of that just went, Pfft. Yeah. You know? Because yeah. that's, like, I moved there that month and went to college there. And part of the reason that I wanted to go was because he was doing, like, a weekly thing when he was mm -hmm. home. You know, at Fat Tuesdays or some, you know, some bar or something and, and goofy ass bar. And uh, he, but then I remember going to like open mic nights and like poetry slams, and everybody was just so sad. And everything everybody wrote was about Jeff being mm. dead. And, and it just like chopped the head off of the, the, the hedra that was uh, uh, Memphis weirdness. I want to ask you about one more place real quick, and it is Ybor City. We've talked about Ybor City before. We both have had a lot of some Ybor City in our songs. Um, I know we've talked about it before. I can't remember what, where we got to it with it, but um, you know, Ybor City on a Friday night couldn't even stand upright. Are, are those real Ybor City memories for you? They are, yeah. I mean, I did not solicit a prostitute. Uh, I, ha I have never solicited a prostitute, but uh, uh, I did. Uh, think about it and then i thought i'm too drunk to solicit a <laughs> prostitute and that wound up later on being that line but i remember you telling me that that was funny and um i very much appreciated that because i i, I thought nobody gets the joke everybody thinks all these songs are so heavy and nobody appreciates the humor but you told me that 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 was funny to you and i was like thank god if <laughs> realizes it then it wasn't just a joke for me i have a thing where i think that all my favorite songwriters are funny and if they aren't I, they probably aren't my favorite songwriters and then you know from bob dylan to chuck berry to you to mick jagger i, I you know yeah. um it's supposed to be funny it's you're missing the whole because they're funny people all you know hilarious fucking people and yeah. like my my favorite at that right now i mean obviously randy newman who just had his 80th birthday yesterday but i think todd snyder is so good oh, at yeah. that he's so good because immediately you know you're you're laughing and then the weight of what he's saying hits you you know and and it's it's i can't do it the way todd does but he's got a song called just like old times where he talks about uh, and he was in memphis in, in those days in the 90s too he was one of those weird memphis dudes but uh i love that just song. like old times oh, that song man, old know? times and he's like looking looking through the back pages of the local to find a prostitute and mm -hmm. it turns out to be his high school girlfriend and it's like 
it's a it's a one-liner and then the weight of it just hits you you know well he also says at the end of that song something along the lines of um yes she is but that's not all she is yeah of course she is but that's not all she is that is oh my god yeah he's talking to the cop and he's doing like just the one half of the conversation fucking fucking genius 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 some very high praise for todd snyder well deserved coming from another songwriting legend great stuff there i'm still pondering whether tool could be influenced by the grifters i have to admit but as i wrap my mind around that i encourage you to check out the grifters out of memphis tennessee probably my favorite band from the 1990s as jason says listen to their song spaced out see for yourself another great thing the grifters did was they led to my own fascination with memphis in an in, indirect in way led to steve salvage joining the whole steady the other thing I keep thinking about is the three levels of songwriting that Jason attributes to um, that conversation with Jay-Z. A part of each song that works for everyone, a part that works for your particular audience, the part that works for the people closest to you. That is really cool to me. A huge thanks to Jason Isbell for joining us for the season three finale of this podcast. We'll be back before too long, of course. I'll be on tour in the UK and Ireland by the time you hear this. Check out all dates at craigfin.net. All the shows are supported by the amazing Scott Levine. On the afternoon of March 2nd at the Moth Club in London, we'll be hosting a live podcast event. A live version of this very podcast, that's how I remember it. Our guests will be Matt Osmond from the legendary band Suede, as well as my tour mate, Scott Levine. It's going to be a hoot. Join us. We've got a show that night at the Moth Club, too. Some tickets available for some shows. Some are sold out. Get involved. Also, the Hold Steady will be in London for our annual weekender, on March 8, 9, 10. The Hold Steady also announced a bunch of dates through 2024. Check them all out at theholdsteady.net and join us for a show. Lots of cool stuff coming up. I'm still really enjoying doing this podcast. I appreciate you paying attention through a great season three. So many awesome guests, so many cool conversations. Another thanks to Jason Isbell for joining us. Check out his tour dates at jasonisbell.com. There's a bunch. He is busy as always. I hope to see you all somewhere. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Craig Finn, and that's how I remember it.